what most of you don't know is my husband was a baseball player through college. And so I have not heard that illustration. And I'm going to bring that back to sunny Florida. If you see me up here get a little woo, it's because I'm adjusting. My blood is very thin between living in California and now Florida for 20 years of my life. So, well, it is wonderful to be here with you all. Um, I can honestly say I love you, and it's because of um, your pastor's wife and your pastor. We have known them for over a decade, and Tracy and Brian, we met them through the seminary, and one of the first conversations we had, Justin and I just fell in love with them because of their heart for the Lord, um, their love and just transparency of their own heart and their own sins, but then their love for you. And so through the years, as we've grown in love for them, I can't help but love the people that get to sit under them and be shepherded by them. So I'm so excited to be here with you. Um, my only regret in being here is that I do not get to stay till Sunday. I have some commitments that I need to get back for. And so because of that, I don't get to fellowship with you for church. So please come bombard me. I would love to meet you. Um, I would love to hear what you love about this church, what you love about your pastor and his wife, and even what the, your, the Lord is teaching your own soul as you are growing in him. So please do not be shy or bashful to come introduce yourself. Um, I'm here to serve you, but I'm also here to be mutually encouraged and to do that to you. So please come and welcome me. I would love to meet each and every one of you. So with that, why don't we pray, and then we're going to dive into our weekend on godliness. Lord, thank you so much that your word is living and active. Thank you that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And may we be those baseball catchers and catch the word in our heart and in our minds and may it meditate deeply within us that it, we wouldn't just appreciate your truth, but, Lord, we would apply your truth and that it would reign deep in our hearts that we might please you with our lives and we might put you on display as we walk through this life here on this earth until we get to be home with you in glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this weekend we are tackling a topic that I know is not new to you. Um, I know it has been taught, emphasized, and even demonstrated very well in this church. And so I'm grateful for that. My heart is not to introduce to you something that's new or earth-shattering. Really, this weekend is a result of what the Lord has been doing in my heart over the past several years. And this weekend, we are going to talk about being godly. Now, when you hear the phrase, being godly, what image comes to your mind? Do you think of a person in a white robe denying themselves the luxuries of this world and praying all day? Do you think of a person who serves relentlessly in the church, maybe a missionary, someone that's known for sacrifice and service? Or what about a person who knows a lot about the Bible and theology? a walking commentary of sorts, that person that's always reading and studying. What's your image of godliness? Often we talk about godliness, and we take these images of what godly looks, godliness looks like to us, and then we take a Martha approach to it. What do I need to do to become godly like that image in my mind? What five steps do I need to implement to then become that person that I envision of godliness. Things like this. I'm going to pray each day for an hour undistractedly. I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. and do my quiet time. 
I am going to read the Bible through three times that each and every year, or this one's my favorite. Tell me if you've made this one. I'm going to serve in the nursery every Sunday for the rest of my life. <laughs> right? Have you made any of these types of commitments? Things you want to do because they embody that picture of godliness you have in your mind? We set these goals and we have these ideas of what we think godliness looks like. And our intentions are often good. We desire to be more like our Savior. We want to please him with our lives. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But often our approach becomes about us and our own vision of godliness instead of him and his desire for our sanctification. Growing in godliness definitely takes work. We are going to see that this weekend. But godliness starts with the heart. And a right heart motive and a right pursuit will bring joy, contentment, and God-orchestrated sanctification in our lives. So what is godliness then? We hear that term thrown around a lot. What does it actually mean? Well, the word godliness is actually used very little in scripture. You will find it in 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and 2nd Peter. Those are the only places the word godliness is used. You will see godly a little bit more throughout scripture. You'll see it in the Psalms. Um, 2 Corinthians 7, you might know godly sorrow leads to repentance. You will see a few terms like that through scripture, but as a whole, it's very used very, very little. However, the idea and the instruction of being godly is found everywhere in scripture. So first, let's define it, what godliness is, so that it'll help us identify what godly, it, godliness looks like in scripture, even if the word is not used itself. Godliness, it's a pious Godward attitude that does what is pleasing to him, to God. I'll repeat that. It's a pious Godward attitude that does what is pleasing to him. We see that godliness is an attitude of piety, and that's not a word we use very much anymore, but it means to reverence. Here specifically, to reverence the Lord. Fearing God will be one of your greatest catalysts in growing in godliness. A fear of the Lord will properly align your heart to have a big God and a correct view of yourself. Fearing God humbles you, and this is the starting place to being godly. Second, we see from our definition that godliness is not just an attitude, it's an action. It does that which is pleasing to him. Our deeds will reflect our heart attitude, which is why our deeds, or even sometimes our lack thereof, are indicators of where our heart is really at. In Jerry Bridges' book, The Practice of Godliness, he defines godliness as a devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. And I think this is an important distinction because godliness starts with a devotion to God, a marveling of who he is and what he's done and what has been accomplished through Christ that then impresses us to respond in living a righteous life. Godliness, as Bridges expresses it, starts with a relationship. If we try to pursue godliness apart from this Godward devotion, then we are tacking on moralism and self-righteousness instead of true godliness. 
This weekend, two of the three passages we look at are not going to use the term godliness in them. Um, but they, what they will do is they will demonstrate what kind of attitude we need to have toward God that then will result in that which is pleasing to him. We're going to look at in scripture what they call, and I know this is a little bit heady, but what they call an indicative imperative relationship. An indicative in scripture is really what is true about God. It's a statement of true. It's not an instruction or a command, but simply stating, <laughs> stating or explaining what is true about God, who he is and what he has done. An imperative is an instruction or command. And this indicative imperative relationship is found everywhere in scripture. My hope is that after this weekend, you will begin to read scripture differently and begin to ask not only what is God asking me to do, but why is God asking me to do it? What is the motivation that the Lord gives that will enable me to act in godliness? Understanding the why behind those instructions, that will be the heartbeat that will sustain you and enable you to persevere and to persevere with joy in this pursuit of godliness. So with that, let's jump in. Tonight we are going to soak in a passage that I know is familiar to most of you. We are going to go to Romans 12, 1 and 2. So why don't you go ahead and turn there with me, and I'm going to go ahead and give you a little background. We learn in chapter 1 of Romans that Paul has a burning desire to go to Rome. He wants to encourage the saints and share the gospel with them. We see in Romans 1, 10 and 11 how Paul is asking the Lord that somehow by God's will he may come to them. He has been prevented thus far, and we learn later in Scripture that he doesn't actually make it to Rome until 10 years later, and he's actually in chains at that point. But here he says, I long to see you. He longs to strengthen them and be mutually encouraged by them. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in, the righteous, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Salvation through the gospel is God's righteousness revealed to people, and this is Paul's greatest longing and the theme of the book of Romans. Why do I bring all that up? Because understanding the theme, understanding Paul's heart from Romans 1 is going to help us understand why he gives the instruction he does in Romans 12. He spent 11 chapters of this book walking through God's righteousness revealed, God's mercy to sinners, and now he says, respond. Respond, dear saint. And so this evening, we are going to look at how God's mercies bring three responses for the godly woman. We're going to first look at remember God's mercy, second, pursue sacrificial worship, and third, resist worldly living. First, we are encouraged to remember God's mercies. In Romans 12:1, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God. This word urge here, it's a strong appeal. It's not some casual like, I hope you do it. It's him pleading with them. And he wants to exhort them to do something. And what is that he wants them to do? He wants them to remember the mercies of God. Now, it might seem ironic 
that when responding to God's mercies, the very first thing we need to do is remember them. But that is exactly what Paul is encouraging here. Before he moves on with the instructions, before he moves on with what we are to do, he says, remember something. Remember the mercies of God. And he says that because we are forgetful people. We often jump to the instruction and we miss the heart. We are to remember his mercies. That word mercy there means compassion and it's a deep-seated emotion. And we see here that it's God's mercies, the mercies of God, him taking pity, demonstrating his kindness towards us as lost sinners. When Paul says, therefore, he's saying, he's indicating that all these mercies have already been talked about in the book of Romans. And we're going to see that these mercies in a believer's life bring about a response. So I'm going to quickly review the mercies of God that Paul has mentioned already in this book. Because i got to give you context and a lot of context, right? Have you learned that from Pastor Brian? Well, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul paints a picture of the depravity of man. In chapter 1, we learn from verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. As we read on in that chapter, he describes this ungodliness. He says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They've become foolish, darkened in their hearts, worshiping the creature instead of the creator, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, debased in mind, evil, covetous, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is the condition of mankind. This is the description of the ungodly. In chapter 2, because of this, all men are under judgment. Because we learn in chapter 3 that there is not one righteous, not even one. All have turned aside and have become worthless. And this is the picture of the darkened heart. This is the picture of the unregenerate soul. This is the picture of us before God's mercy in our lives. That is why Romans 3, 21 through 26 is so precious. And I want to read that whole section for you because I want you to hear it with fresh ears. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, but it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished, for the demonstration, that is, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Who is this passage about? It's God's righteousness was manifested, God's standard. We have all fallen short of God's glory. His grace justifies as a gift. God put forth Christ as the propitiation for our sins. In Christ, God's righteousness was revealed. In his forbearance, 
he has passed over sin. Why? To show his righteousness at the present time, that he is just and a justifier to the one who believes in Christ. So you see, our salvation involves us. Our salvation is not about us. It's about God, and it's about putting his righteous works on display, his righteous works of mercy. That is why the very next verse, verse 27 says, then what becomes of boasting? What did we have to offer, ladies? We had to offer chapters 1 through 3. A depraved heart, lost in our sin, opposed to God. That is why the mercies of God are so significant. Paul goes on to explain and elaborate in chapter 4 that this gift of salvation, our being justified, is by faith, not by works. Chapter 5 talks about our being justified brings peace with God. This came at the cost of Jesus' blood in reconciling us to God while we were still enemies of him. And this is a free gift of grace. Chapter 6, we learn that sin is no longer our master. We have been set free from sin and been raised with Christ, brought from death to life, and have eternal life in Christ. Chapter 7 and 8, although we still have to fight these fleshly temptations and the accusations of the law in our life, we've been saved through Christ and given the Spirit of God who enables us to have victory over sin. We also see in chapter 8 that we are secure in God and nothing can separate us from his love. Chapters 9 through 11, we learn that God is faithful to his people and will fulfill his promises to Israel. These 11 chapters are about God, his workings of righteousness, his mercies upon fallen and darkened hearts. We needed mercy, and God provided it in every way that we might be reconciled to him. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are a people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul also uses a similar idea in 1 Timothy 1. 13 through 16, when he's referring, referring to himself as the worst of sinners, he says that he had received mercy. In both of these situations, in Peter and in 1 Timothy, the phrase received mercy, it's in the passive voice. That doesn't mean much to us in our English grammar, but what that's showing is that mercy was given to them. They were not the active pursuers of it. It was done to them. They had been mercied, I guess, if you can use an English terminology for it. And so when we stop and consider who we are, when we look at the transformation of saving grace in our lives, and when we look at the sufficient provision of God in Christ, one cannot help but respond. So that is why Paul urges us to remember the mercies of God. Because our response should then be, if we are remembering those things, to pursue sacrificial worship and resist worldly living. And those are our next two points. Let's read the rest of our passage. Um, 
It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So first we are to remember the mercies of God. Then we are to respond to God's mercy by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is our point two, pursue sacrificial worship. As we see in our text, we pursue sacrificial worship by presenting ourselves to God. This word to present here, it means to make available or to offer. The same word is used in that sacrificial system of the Old Testament of how they presented animals on the altar to the Lord. And it's, it carries the connotation of making a decisive decision, a decision to do that. And so the imagery here is that we are to present ourselves to make a definitive choice to offer one's body as a sacrifice. The sacrifice is described in three ways, living and, um, I just lost my place. Oh, living, holy, and acceptable. The word living here, it carries the idea of both spiritual life and physical life. So spiritually, we are now alive in Christ, and then physically, we are now to live out our life for Christ. We are called to be holy, without blemish, pure, set apart for the Lord's work. And lastly, we are called to be acceptable, a pleasing aroma to him. We are to definitively choose to present our bodies all that we are and all that we do to the Lord. And we do this because his mercies have made us alive, setting us apart for him and allowing us to now please him in all that we do. There are two other times this word to present is used in Romans that's helpful for our instruction here. In Romans 6, 13 and 14, it says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Here, we see that idea of devotion we talked about. We are to present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead. We've been rescued. And likewise, our instruments, which is our bodies, are to be instruments of righteousness to God. And we do this not because we are under the law. We do this because we are now under grace. Romans 6.19 says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We see here that practicing our righteousness brings the sanctification about in our life, that growth of Christ-like godliness. And how is this type of living described, this presenting ourselves to the Lord? Our text answers that as well. It says, living this way is described as a believer's spiritual service of worship. The King James Version says it's your reasonable service of worship. When saved by the mercies of God, our only rational response is to offer ourselves to the Lord. 
This giving of ourselves is worship. Ladies, our lives are meant to be worship, not just a sacrifice, but worship. Psalm 50, verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Our sacrifice is merely the means in which we demonstrate that attitude of devotion to the Lord. When you think of your life, how are you presenting yourself? Are you presenting yourself to the Lord, or is there another person you are worshiping? Do you view each action as an opportunity to demonstrate righteousness, remembering that God saved you to live differently? Or are there habits of unrighteousness in your life? Is your life that fragrant aroma to the Lord? Or does your life leave a stench through your words, your complaints, your anger outbursts, your bitterness, your laziness? The list could go on. And ladies, we all have those stinky areas. But when they surface, what should be our, red, our response? Those should be seen as a red flag to us that I have abandoned the mercies of God and I am now living, living and worshiping someone else. Normally that someone else is ourselves. Well, I have stinky areas. I have many stinky areas, but one of them in particular is I am unbelievably self-reliant, AKA proud. I am a driver in personality. I am a pull-up-your-bootstraps kind of gal. I have learned that when I feel overwhelmed, I start to become a little curt in my responses. I start to become that taskmaster at home. And let's just say these are some minor red flags that I am walking in the pattern of self-reliance once again. But with this recognition comes an opportunity. It's my opportunity to run back to him to confess my forgetfulness and my willful heart, and then to walk in righteousness and present myself to the Lord once again. I have been mercied, and this merits a heart devoted to him, humble once again. This is my opportunity to demonstrate how his mercy causes me to live faithfully. What are your red flags? Where are those stinky areas in your life? Those are the things we need to be evaluating. Those are often indicators of when our heart has lost sight of God. So we are to demonstrate mercy faithfully by first remembering God's mercies, which cause us to then second, pursue sacrificial worship in our lives. And then third, to resist worldly living. In Romans 12 too, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here Paul gets really practical with us. He, how does one present her life as a living sacrifice to the Lord? First, he warns us. He says, do not be conformed to this world. That word to be conformed, it means to be fashioned after. Here it's fashioning oneself after the world's thinking, emotions, ideas, philosophies, actions. And this conforming oneself is an act of choice, something I do to myself. This is a good reminder because we are not neutral. We are either conforming ourselves to the, the world 
or we are conforming ourselves to truth. There is no middle ground for us. John says it more poignantly when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Well, we all have old habits. Remember that depraved picture I showed you in Romans 1? We all have remnant of that in our life, whether it's attitudes, actions, responses. And though we were saved by grace, we still have many of these habits of our flesh from the past. And so that's why this instruction is so important. That's why we are not to be conformed to the world. Do you have divided affections in any way? How is worldliness still present in your life and in your thinking? You know, the philosophies of this world can be really subtle, especially when they get mingled with Christian principles. So let me give you a few examples of how worldliness might have seeped into your thinking and your actions. For example, the Bible calls us to be hospitable. The world's idea of hospitality is having an HGTV home, preparing gourmet meals, and making sure that no detail is overlooked when it comes to pampering our guests. The Bible says, whatever you have, share it, even with strangers. Hospitality is about bringing people into your home, sharing what you have and loving them, presenting them perfect in Christ, not presenting a perfect image to them having a genuine care and fellowship. Has worldly thinking seeped into your hospitality? Or what about parenting? The world says, deny your kids nothing. They need to be in athletics, music, and excelling in school. Kids are entitled to all the things their friends have and they don't have to work for it. The Bible says, parenting is about shepherding our kids' hearts informing their consciences, teaching them wisdom, and pointing them to Jesus. Our time and energy is not about setting them up well to do well in this world, although we do need to prepare them. No, our job is to teach them faithfully and teach them truth, that they might have a foundation and be able to discern what is good and right so that the Lord might stimulate their hearts towards himself. Let's do a third one. How about money? I'm getting personal tonight. The Bible is clear. Money is a tool of the Lord's that he has entrusted to us, stewarded to us, to be used for his glory and purposes and to provide for our basic needs. We are to store up treasure in heaven, not here on this earth. Money is not a tool for our self-indulgence, but for serving him. And yet how often are your purchases frivolous, self-indulgent, pampering, or giving in to fleshly desires? And it is not wrong to enjoy the things of this earth. It really comes down to the heart of why. Why are you purchasing those things? Are you living beyond your means and incurring unnecessary debt? The world tells us, design yourself nothing. No need to wait. You deserve it, even if you can't afford it. Do you think that as long as I give to the church, I can use the rest of the money however I want? 
God says he owns all the cattle on the hill. And he will distribute it as he chooses. We are merely stewards, not owners. See how subtle worldliness can find its way into our thinking and our actions? Has worldliness seeped into your thinking and into your life in any way? Paul then goes on to tell us the means in which we can resist being conformed to the world. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The remedy to resisting worldliness, to not getting duped into their way of thinking and acting, is to renew your mind in truth. And it will transform you to be godly. So this world tra word transform here, it, it's one of my favorites. And because it is so liberating when you understand the intent behind this word transformed. He says be transformed. That means to be transfigured from one form to another. Being made new in form. Abandoning the old. Here one is abandoning her worldly ways and taking on the form of godly thinking and living. And although this word is in the present tense, and what that means is you are to actively being transformed all the time, it is in the passive voice. That means you are not the one transforming yourself. It is being done to you. And we see that God's word through renewing our mind and truth is what accomplishes this transformation. Isn't that encouraging? You don't have to figure out how to transform yourself. That's not your job. Your job is to renew your mind in truth. It's interesting to me that we often believe, and we believe, not often, we believe and we cling to the fact that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And yet, how often do we try to sanctify ourselves without the help of God? We have this idea of what becoming godly looks like, and we pursue our idea instead of running to him, allowing his word to transform us in his timing and in his way. Our concern is to saturate ourselves in truth, to renew our minds, and he will use truth in our lives to sanctify us according to his will. Our minds are the spiritual battleground as Christians. Every day as we walk in this world, we are being bombarded by worldly thoughts, ideas, people, media, music. We live in a fallen world. Unless we look at, work at renewing our minds, our minds will be shaped by the world. I'm going to actually have you turn to another passage. Turn to 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. And this is another passage that says a very similar thing, and I think it's helpful. 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. In verse 6, it says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant. He's speaking, Paul is speaking to Timothy here. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable in all things since it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Here, Paul is instructing Timothy to point out the false teachings that are being promoted in Ephesus, what he calls these silly wives' tales and mythologies. 
And how is he to do this? How is he to be a good servant? It's being constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine. That word nourished there means to nurture, or it really means to like train up in. And again, this word is in the passive voice. The training is being done to Timothy. How? Through the words of faith and the sound doctrine. Just like in Romans 12 too, the word is the sharpening agent that trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live for the Lord. Paul goes on to say in this verse, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. I love that. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That word discipline here is actually in the present active tense. That means we are the ones that are to be disciplining ourselves for godliness. And this proactive discipline of ourselves is what, is what produces real godliness in our lives. And that's profitable for both now in this life and for eternity. But I don't want you to miss the heart here. Being nourished by the word comes before disciplining ourselves. The word working in and transforming in our hearts is what compels us then to respond, to want to renounce these worldly ideologies and pursue godliness. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 Another common verse for us. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That is what the word produces in our lives. And these two verses, they only scratch the surface of the place of affection that the word is supposed to have, the nourishing qualities of it, how it sustains us, renews us, feeds us, grows us, sharpens us. How is your time in the word? How are you doing with saturating yourself with truth? I know there's different seasons, and some can be a little more challenging than others. For example, you moms with young children, you're thinking, you want me to saturate myself in the word? I don't even get two minutes by myself during the day. I've been there. I remember that. You like run to the bathroom and close the door just to get a break, right? Well, God sees your heart, and he knows the season you're in. The question is, are you trying to renew your mind, or do you make excuses because of the season that you're in? I remember as a young mom, I was being challenged in this way, and I developed the, what I call the three-strike rule. I had three, hey, we're, we're doing well with the baseball analogy here, yeah. I had three possible times during the day when I could do my quiet time. In the morning before the kids get up, and let's just be realistic, you're lucky if you get up by the time the kids get up. Second was during their blanket or quiet time, or third was during their afternoon nap. There were three possible times during my day, and that if I missed that first one, I knew I needed to prioritize one of the second two. I think learning to be flexible is really helpful. 
I know if you're anything like me and if you miss your quiet time in the morning and you're like, great, my whole day's ruined, never going to get to it. It doesn't have to be that way. Find some different times in your day because you know what? Every day is a unique experience. There's not two days the same. And you're lucky if you get your quiet time the same time every day, especially in certain seasons. The question is, are you finding ways and times to be disciplined in renewing your mind when life happens? I am now with a middle schooler and a high schooler. And honestly, the stage poses very different challenges from my time in the Word. Every stage does. So can I encourage you? Fight. Fight to get time in the Word. Fight to let the Word be that sustenance so that you do not grow weary and withered in your worship of God and the pursuits of godliness. And this pursuit, this renewing of our minds, it can take many different forms. You know, maybe listening to sermons while you're cleaning or while you're schlepping kids, especially in the teenage years, from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Or filling your mind with gospel-centered music. How about memorizing scripture so that the Holy Spirit can recount that during your day as you're walking through it? And although being in the Word is essential to our understanding and knowledge of the Lord, we're all going to miss days. You know what? God's grace doesn't change on those days either. The goal is to be renewing our mind and to be diligent to do so. Not perfection, but striving. We see in this text that this transforming work of renewing of our mind has a result. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Renewing our mind, it helps us discern what God's will is. How? Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word is alive. It is living and active. It penetrates to the heart, and it helps us discern what is good, what is of the Lord, and what is of my flesh. When, in our, when our heart is contaminated, and where we are living according to truth. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Saturate your life with truth. The truth of God's character and his purposes will grant you the discernment to determine what is good and acceptable. So often, we discern what is right by what we feel or by what we think. What I perceive as good, what I perceive as acceptable, my assessment, my understanding. You know what? That never ends well. God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, right? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Therefore, do not trust what you feel or even what you think. Only trust that which you know to be true. And the word gives us that truth. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. You know this one. Probably have it posted in your house somewhere. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. 
His will is not hidden from us. Scripture addresses all that concerns our heart, whether in principle or instruction. I love this verse, Psalm 143.10. It's David in his prayer to the Lord, and he says, Teach me, O God, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. He didn't say, teach me to know your will or teach me to understand it. He didn't say, help me find your will or reveal it to me. No, he said, Lord, teach me to do your will. This carries the presupposition and the assumption that it was not a matter of information for David. It was a matter of obedience. So how do we discern his will and, we ob- and how do we learn to obey it like this? We immerse ourselves in truth that we might know what to do in a way that pleases the Lord. This is how we are to respond to God's mercies, this presenting ourselves to worship to him. Let me ask you now, when you hear the phrase being godly, what image comes to your mind? Do you still picture person in a white robe denying themselves the luxuries of this life and praying all all day long? Or do you now run to the Lord and see his mercies, what he's called you to be, what he wants from you? Do you now run with a desire to say, I want to worship the Lord no matter the cost. He's worthy of that worship, trusting that he's going to sanctify you. He's going to transform you in his time, and his way. The indicatives of scripture make a big difference. That which we know to be true about the Lord. These indicatives teach us to fear him, to have that attitude of piety that then will enable us to do what is pleasing to him in a way that is worship, not drudgery. We are called in this passage to respond to the realities of God's mercies in three ways. We are called to remember God's mercies. We are called to pursue sacrificial worship. And we are called to resist worldly living. Godliness is not complicated when we understand the why. The struggle to respond accurately is real. But when we meditate upon what we know to be true about him, and live dependently on him for our sanctification, this struggle, it becomes a joy. It becomes that delight we heard about in Psalm 1 in Jeremiah 15. So tomorrow morning, we are going to begin to build on this arsenal to help you learn to persevere by looking at our identity in Christ and the reality of our faith in Christ. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you did not treat us as our sins deserved. Lord, we were those depraved people. We were those darkened hearts. And you sent Christ to come and be the propitiation of our sins, to be the satisfaction of our sins, that we might be viewed as righteous before the Lord, that we might be reconciled to him. And Lord, we forget this so often in our life. We start to turn to our own strength, our own ways, our own ideas, and we forget that we've been rescued that we've been bought with a price, that we've been plucked out for your purpose, for your glory. Lord, I pray as we continue to wrestle with this idea of godliness, Lord, that we would not just run to the instructions, the what we're to do, but Lord, we would marvel at who you are, and that would create a fear in our hearts to want to honor you 
with all that we are and all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.